Section zero of the end of the Middle Age, twelve seventy three to fourteen fifty three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Pamela Nagami. The end of the Middle Age, twelve seventy three to fourteen fifty three by Eleanor Constance Lodge. Introduction. The history of Europe from 1273 to 1453 is of noteworthy interest and importance, but it is also so extraordinarily complex that it is impossible to tell the story in orderly or chronological sequence. Europe had lost by this time such unity as was given to it in the earlier Middle Ages by the prominence of the papacy and the empire and it had not yet gained such an approach to unity as it acquired by the formation of distinct national states whose relations with each other whether of friendship or of hostility render it possible to construct a history of international wars and diplomacy from the sixteenth century onwards the essential thing to grasp is that the period was one of transition a time in which medieval characteristics were decaying and modern characteristics were growing up, but in which the former had not disappeared and the latter were not yet strong enough to take their place. Popes and emperors still claimed to be the joint heads of Western Christendom and sometimes acted as if their supremacy was still recognized. But their claims were practically obsolete. Some emperors, such as Rudolf and Charles IV, recognized the change and tried to devise a new policy to suit the altered times. Others, such as Henry VII and Sigismund, talked and acted as if the old traditions were still unshaken. So again we find a pope like Boniface VIII defying national independence in the tones of an Innocent III or an Honorius IV, whereas a more prudent pontiff, Martin V evaded the control of the Council of Constance by making separate terms with the various states of Europe, and devoted himself not so much to the task of ruling the Church as to that of restoring the temporal power in the Papal States. It is the same with the growth of nations which ultimately shattered the medieval conception of a united Christendom. England was the only state which was really organized in the early part of the period and even England passed in the 15th century through a prolonged civil war, the Wars of the Roses, which for a time seemed almost fatal to national unity. France underwent horrible convulsions during this period, but the dawn of better things began with the inspiring career of Joan of Arc and with the administrative reforms of the reign of Charles VII. Spain was still non-existent by 1453, but the prolonged war against the Moors had given to the various kingdoms of the peninsula such a community of interests and general character as facilitated their later union. The growth of German unity was obstructed by the endless diversity of its political organisms and by the fatal union of its crown with the shadowy dignity of the Roman Empire. But the tendency of the age toward unity and consolidation is to be traced even at this early date, in some of the separate states of Germany, notably in Brandenburg. 
Italy, the teacher of Europe in art, in literature, and in political philosophy, was the most hopelessly divided by its geography and by the strong individuality of many of its component parts, and Italy remained a mere geographical expression until the 19th century. Like all periods of transition, the age is one of numerous and bold experiments. Many of these experiments were successful and many failed, but the history of the failures is often as important and instructive as that of the successes. The great Slav race, which for generations had been conquered or driven back eastward by the Germans, made a great and for a time successful effort to recover its independence and extend its power. We may trace this movement in the Hussite Wars in Bohemia and the Union of Poland and Lithuania under the strong house of Jogello. The Teutonic Knights strove to utilize the last crusading impulse of the Middle Ages to found a great state on the Baltic. They failed because their organization was ill-suited for civil government. The age of crusades was over, and the United Slavs were too powerful. But the state of Prussia, after all, survived the ruin and dissolution of its creators. A notable experiment was the attempt of the famous Hanseatic League to maintain the interests of merchants and the predominance of German influence in the Baltic and North Sea. They also failed because a federation of towns could not hold its own when national states were formed and because the Baltic lost much of its importance when trade was diverted to the Atlantic. But their advancements were great in themselves, and their bold assertion of the power of merchants marks a great change from the military and feudal ideals of the Middle Ages. Another interesting experiment provoked in some measure by the strength of the Hansa towns was the attempt to combine the Scandinavian states by the Union of Kalmar. These and other efforts of the age give it the appearance of almost kaleidoscopic variety, but all have their lesson. The most striking experiments, however, were those in art, in literature, and in science. The 15th century is preeminently the period which is known as the Renaissance or the New Birth. One side of this intellectual activity is the revival of the study of ancient learning, the hunt for manuscripts, the study of the classical languages, the exposition of the great writers of antiquity and the copying of their style. Perhaps the best representatives of this accumulative and imitative side of the Renaissance are Pope Nicholas V, the founder of the Vatican Library, and Aeneas Silvius Piccolomini, afterwards also Pope, as Pius II. But the Renaissance was not only imitative, it was also creative. It emancipated men's minds from the old restraints imposed upon them. Side by side with the revival of classical learning went on the growth of national languages and literatures, of Italian in Dante, Petrarch, and Boccaccio, of English in Chaucer and Wycliffe, of French in a series of writers between Joinville and Comines. There was also a marvelous display of originality, especially in Italy, in painting and sculpture. It would take too long to describe the change in words, and it is far better to see it for oneself. A visit to the Italian rooms of the National Gallery and a study of well-selected photographs of Italian pictures will enable anyone to trace the gradual abandonment of the stiff and lifeless forms of early art 
the close study and delight in nature and the exercise of unfettered imagination which mark the progress of painting in the fourteenth and fifteenth centuries the object of this introduction is to show that the period is well worthy of study the more it is followed out the more fascinating it becomes and it must never be forgotten that it is the period which begins the renaissance and leads up to the great achievements which follow the reformation in the church the discovery of a new world the spread of education and the diffusion of literature the general change throughout europe from medieval to modern life richard lodge end of section zero